Forty-four years ago, the Voyager spacecraft were launched into space. They are both still moving through space at upwards of fifty to sixty thousand kilometers per hour. Both Voyager One and Voyager Two are equipped with two golden records and a collection of images that portray the experience of life on Earth. These flying time capsules bring along the sounds, shapes, and species that occupy the planet we live on. In this episode, we sadly won't be talking about outer space. However, think about your life around you, your social environment. What images make up your life? What sounds situate your being? What are the things, obvious and mundane, that guide your motivations, your responsibilities, and your sense of belonging? Welcome back to the Science Slot Machine. In this episode, we try to think about what we would send out to space, be it sounds, images, objects, or other humans. That portray our own lives and activities. In this episode, we discuss shaping spaces and the spaces of shaping. Welcome to the Science Slot Machine. Brought to you by students of the Science, Technology, and Society Master's Program at the University of Vienna. In this podcast, we explore topics from the very notable to the very niche. We always keep an eye on how science, technology, and society relate to one another in various aspects. We discuss hot topics, but also suggestions by you. Check us out on social media, and be sure to send us your topic suggestions to science.machine@gmail.com. Hey everyone! Thanks for joining us today. I'm Nora, and here with Harry, Robbie, and Costa. Being new to the show, one of the first things I did was giving an assignment to everyone in the team. I thought it would be interesting to record how our lives sound like at the moment. Here in Vienna, we are back in lockdown, so it's difficult to meet up physically and spend some time together in the same place. This is why I thought it would be cool to listen to how Harry's. Robbie's and Costa's lives sounds like these days. So in the past few days, we've all walked around alone, equipped with our phones, and recorded ordinary moments in our lockdown routine: the familiar hissing of the coffee machine in the morning, keyboard typing—actually, lots of keyboard typing—the creaking wooden floor in our rooms, the songs of a few brave birds that came out to catch a glimpse of rare Viennese sunshine. Probably many of these sounds feel familiar to you too, but do we usually pay attention to them? I guess not. At least the four of us usually don't, and this is why today we will listen in and discuss the sounds that make up the space around us. Okay, I think I have explained enough. Let's enter the STS spaceship, fasten your seatbelts, and explore soundscapes and spaces with us. Thank you, Harry and Nora, for introducing the topic so nicely. I think it's quite interesting that we are going to discuss our surrounding, our environment, and how we shape it, particularly now in times of lockdown. So, as Harry mentioned earlier, back in the days they sent、um, a few pictures and some sounds. So maybe we can give a few examples of how our surroundings sound like right now. Let me start first. And you guys tell me if you can actually guess what I'm doing.
And so it goes. Yeah, it sounds familiar to me. <laughs> That's basically how I spend my days these days. <laughs> You're typing. Yes, I'm typing. I'm typing for work. I'm typing for university. I'm typing to communicate with my friends. So besides the video calls that are endless, and I, of course, couldn't record due to private reasons, Typing is a big part of my environment currently, and it's really shaping me as a person, I feel like, in the past one year. So it would be interesting if nowadays we actually send this as a sound to the aliens back, back out there in the space. What would they think? Um, how would that describe life on Earth? I'm, I'm also very confused. Um, but I think to not make it so random... Maybe we can introduce some STS twists that can be connected to this super random sound of typing. Any ideas? I actually have an idea. Um, so I stumbled across the concept of epistemic living spaces. And I think that might fit here quite well into the sound you just presented, the keyboard uh, typing and the sounds that it makes. Because it, this sound actually describes your environment that you're currently in, Robbie, uh, namely your desk, I think, at home and your uh, epistemic living space, so to say, where you create knowledge, learn new things and uh, communicate with peers, with uh, colleagues, with your family, probably. And so the concept of epistemic living spaces was uh, actually um, developed by Ulrike Feld and Maximilian Fochler from our department, the Department of Science and Technology Studies at the University of Vienna. And they tried to grasp the different modes of knowing, living and working in, the academ in academia. So, so basically what they are looking at is five di different aspects and or five dimensions of uh, living and working in academia. And these five uh, dimensions, the first one is the epistemic dimension. So this raises questions about what knowledge is to be produced, how it is to be produced, and what actually counts as good knowledge. So these might be questions that uh, Robbie is also encountering in her life, like what is she researching in her studies and how is she communicating this? Uh, the second dimension is the spatial or material dimension, which we are particularly interested in as we also are interested in how our environment shapes ourselves and how we shape our environments. So this has to do with different technologies, the architecture, the mobility of, which is currently quite restricted due to the COVID-19 crisis, and also the term tacit geography. So where you are situated in the world, so to say. The how third is this called again? Tacit geography. Oh, wow. That sounds... Yeah. That sounds fancy. Fancy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a quite interesting point. Uh, the third dimension is the temporal dimension. So in what kind of time structures are you embedded? Um, this particularly for us means certain deadlines, assignments you need to deliver. Um, in the term, in the, when we think of scientists or researchers, this is like the project based approach. They are often embedded in projects. And so we can even speak of a process that is called projectification of academia, where universities and their 
um, employees, so the researchers, are continuously embedded into projects. So they have the deadlines, they have the final reports, and this continues over their life. Ravi too, right? You're also kind of embedded in projects and deadlines and stuff. Yes, and it actually reminds me of something interesting that Costa mentioned earlier about the different dimensions. You know, there are officially three, four, I don't know how many dimensions, but when you spend so much time at home and when your dimension is your desk and your computer and Zoom calls, you really start to lose track, not only on time, but in general on, on any dimension out there on anything. So I think also this epistemic living space, you can lose the boundary of it very easily because you unite a lot of different chapters of your life, currently sitting at home, working and studying and communicating with friends from one particular place. You're combining your whole environment, your a lot of spaces and dimensions into one. And I don't know if that's multitasking. I don't know if that's good. Of course, it says saves a lot of time, but I think it's going to be very confusing for people in the future if we continue living that way for, for a longer period. Okay, my question is, can you be in different epistemic living spaces at the same time? Or would this kind of merging of professional and private life, then would only the professional part then maybe be the epistemic living space? And the other living space isn't called epistemic anymore. Yeah, I th I think this is a difficult question. But what I would guess is that mostly the concept of epistemic living space is connected to your research environment or how you produce knowledge. But at the same time, they also talk about living in this space. So it is also, and this points to the fifth dimension, um, which they concentrate on, which is the social one. So you're also tightly connected to your peers, to your colleagues, to your boss, maybe. And this points also to the importance of social interactions, which we are currently like maybe missing a lot mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, which are um, transformed into technological spaces, into internet and furthermore and telephone. So I would guess you could, your home at the moment could be different epistemic living spaces for different purposes, maybe. Talking about homes, actually, here I want to bring up another SCS thingy, and it's co-production. And I know it's quite random, but yes, you can co-produce a lot of stuff. I don't know if Jasanoff is going to agree with this, but I think you can easily give us an example the co-production between uh, humans and the non-human environment that we are surrounded by and what we just spoke about. So just to briefly explain what exactly is co-production. Co-production is a theoretical approach, surprise, surprise, that uses the dynamic interaction between technology and society or any other two aspects, simply to give a fuller perspective uh, on how those two correlate and produce knowledge together. So we are kind of used to perceiving architecture as the process of constructing our urban environment and as an answer to our primary need of shelter. But architecture is much more than that. And I learned that in our department, we had a lot of 
interesting classes that are devoted to architecture and its impact on society. So I know it's random and I know I'm from Bulgaria and I always give as an example something from Bulgaria. And once again, I'm going to give another example and it's a research that happened in 2016 and it was focused exactly on how particular neighborhoods and architecture shape the social environment and the communities and especially the urban regeneration and the role of civic society in this construction, not only of the architecture, but of the space. So what is interesting is that architects aim to approach the neighborhood as a living organism with a very complex relationship between the urban design and the social community. And they spent over a year researching the neighborhood. They used a lot of different approaches. They had anthropologists uh, helping them out with some uh, interviews and stuff like that. So they can really gain a perspective on and insights on how the community really builds on the architecture and how the, the architecture actually also impacts the people. So one architect, uh, she is called Megan Lundberg and she is from the USA. She actually came in Bulgaria only to research this project and had an interview with her a while ago and she gave me some super nice insights on in general why it's so important for an architect to understand the social in order to shape the physical. And what she told me that the most important thing in her design is to understand what is appropriate in terms of living spaces. And I think this is something we quite often forget, especially when we talk about buildings or something that is just there. And we need to understand the two visions of architecture in general, how the architects are seeing it and how the people living in it are seeing it. And I don't know, I think it's very interesting because if you think about it, one flat or one house could look so differently depending on the people who are living in it, of course, and depending on what neighborhood it is in. And since in Bulgaria, people have this tendency to really have close relations with the neighborhoods, what this uh, U.S. architect saw that I guess really surprised her is that the people actually were building common environments and common spaces in the places that are between the different Plattenbau buildings, if you know that it, what that is. These are the super communist buildings that you can also see in Germany, actually. It's not only in Bulgaria, I swear. Um are those the same, so, Robbie? Are those the same buildings as like sugar cube buildings? Is what we call them. Like they look. I don't know they're, how they're just very square and usually often very gray. Yes, exactly those ones. <laughs> so we, yes, we call them sugar yes, yes. sugar cube housing. Sugar cube housing. Yeah. So in this relation to to space, I just wanted to really draw this example between architecture and humans because this feeling we get. To feel at home, it's not just there, it's not created by architects, but it's how we impact our own environment and we try to make it cozy for ourselves. And on the other side, depending on where we live, our surrounding and our space that is surrounding us also shapes us as people. Would you be close to your neighbors or not? Would you have common activities with your neighbors or not? Would you go out 
often in the park or would you prefer to stay at home? Would it be noisy or wouldn't be not? So I don't know. I think currently in the lockdown, it's also quite, quite trendy topic to discuss and just another STSC angle to to the notion of physical spaces more like and how human actors and non-human actors constantly intertwine with each other. Yeah, Ravi, like speaking of human and non-human actors, I really feel like that, I mean, also these non-human actors. So if you think, for example, of the furniture or just the way how, how a room, how the walls are kind of built or stuff like that, that really kind of then also shapes how we as humans behave. So some SDS scholars have said that technologies, and I think in a broader sense than architecture, can be considered as a kind of technology, that these things, these non-human actors, that they discipline us and they make us things do. And um, then there's one one very famous uh, SDS scholar. She's called Madeleine Akrish. And she had this notion of the script so that in every artifact, she says, there's this kind of vision built in what the users do with um, do with this thing, this object, or maybe then also then architects have a certain, or for sure, have a certain vision of how a space is used. But um, when we now leave all these populated areas, I have two more sounds for you, and I would uh, kind of play them to you, and then you can maybe tell me, or you can maybe um, compare them and tell me what what's different. So just as a brief introduction, one of my main activities since kind of the pandemic started is actually going for walks <laughs> when I'm not typing in my computer or attending any Zoom meetings. Um, and yeah, I've been I've visited my family over the Easter holiday, and I also went for a walk. And then I also went, of course, for walks in Vienna. So you can maybe compare these two recordings. So this was in the countryside. My family lives in the countryside, and now there's the, and now we will listen to the recording uh, from the Prata in Vienna. So that's this big park area in Vienna. Okay, so what was different in these two recordings? I will tell Did you, you what, was, was, what was the same. It was both beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> ah, thanks. Yeah, it, like, like what? Okay, what? What? What was uh, different? I mean, except for the birds, maybe. <laughs> Don't, I mean, the birds sound beautiful, but actually, that's not what I want to point you at. <laughs> 
I mean, I think I don't know. I think I heard it sounded like there was I don't know more things going on in in the second recording that it wasn't just the birds and and the trees, but there might have been it almost sounded like a car. Uh, but it might not have been a car. It might have been just other people. It just sounded like there was things going on rather than just you alone with the birds. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually what I also thought that then when you compare these two, it's actually think when you think of what isn't present in one and what that's kind of the cars and the traffic. Um And this reminded me of uh, actor network theory. I mean, I mentioned Madeleine Akrish before, and she's one of the most famous um, proponents of this theory. I mean, it's not re really a theory then, as the scholars would argue, but it's like this concept or a kind of way of thinking in a way, as the name already says, actor network. So it's all about networks and relations between different actors. So um, when we then compare kind of the recording from the Plate, that would mean this, this actor network was kind of more complex or had maybe more different actors in it. So we had, for example, the cars and the church uh, bells and also a lot of different birds. And these are also, and myself, of course, so we have both, both human and non-human actors. And a very important point then in A&T is, that they take both human and non-human actors. They they even call call it actants, so not not actor not actors, but actants to make kind of to kind of get rid of this distinction of between non-human and human actors, because they kind of say we cannot really separate between them. It's kind of or we should not separate between them. We just this boundary between human and non-human actors gets dissolved and both of these types of actors have kind of an equal degree or potentially an equal degree of agency. So as I explained before, like technologies can have like an impact on you as a human, how you behave. Um, and of course, we humans also shape our environment or shape the things around us. Um, and then in the end, we have just these socio-technical hybrids, they, they say. Could you maybe jump in and put uh, what a socio-technical um, hybrid is into like layperson's terms? Maybe that would be a little bit helpful and break it down a little bit. Yeah, it's more simple for me included. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, uh, thanks <laughs> for raising that because uh, it's true. You're always so kind of caught up in your SDS <laughs> I'm at least, and it's kind of difficult to kind of explain it in easy words. But I mean, it was basically what I tried to explain with this, that you can't really make a distinction between humans and non-humans anymore. So basically, if you think in terms of a hierarchy, we often think, okay, humans are kind of more powerful or they have more agency than, for example, my computer or than my car or something like that. But um, with actor network theory, you would say that's not really true. If you think of this hierarchy of agency, um, then an artifact, a technology, potentially has the same kind or the same degree of agency than I as a human have. 
So it doesn't really make sense to make even a distinction between humans and non-humans in a way. Everything has agency. And with hybrid, we just mean we try to overcome this distinction. So um, it's basically, we don't think of these things as, a, as separate entities anymore, but it, it kind of becomes one hybrid, one, one entity in a way. So we try Can to... We Sorry for interrupting. Can we compare then the space with the entity you're talking about? Because it seems like the main builders of the space and the environment are the human and non-human human actors in any aspect you can think of, uh, be it animals, be it um, nature or technology. So I think it's quite interesting why we haven't actually spoken about the the entities as simply spaces that uh, the human and non-human actors develop um, and build with the time. Yeah, actually, I, I'd say it didn't, if we think in terms of the space, I probably wouldn't kind of say the space is like a hybrid or something. I would then come back to this network, networky character, that we think of space as a network. And a lot of different entities, a lot of different actants so humans and humans, humans and non-humans become um, part of that network. In actor network theory language, you would say they become enrolled in that network. So all of them, they make up the network and they are kind of um, connected with each other. And space basically, um, as, as big as this network becomes in a way, that big is our space, um, but we can also zoom in, of course, and look at a particular relationship in this space. So, for example, now we're we're kind of um, zooming, or we're in this online video conference, and I mean, all of us kind of it's kind of the four of us are part of the network, and each of us is sitting in front of a, a screen, and we have Wi-Fi access, and all these things become part of the network. So, the four of us then our laptops or our computers, then our Wi-Fi connections. These are all the things that make up this space we are in right now. That's Thanks, Nora. That was really, that, that helped me a lot thinking about it. Um, I think I have a question that might bring us back to this original question that you had, which is a living space versus an epistemic living space. So what makes something an epistemic one where knowledge is and, and researchers operate rather than where your life goes. So I, I guess that's a question of drawing boundaries. And it also has something to do about the networks because you say, you speak as if the space could be the network or it could not be the network depending on what's going on. And I would argue it depends how big you draw your network or how big you imagine the network could, could be because couldn't the space actually be just another actor in the network itself? Um, so that a, a network, if you look at it that way, I think that's why it's important for me that we we always look at these theories as just thinking blocks rather than laws, because if you just analyze the network of many different epistemic living spaces or living spaces, then each one of those things could just be um, an actor in there. So do you do you have anything to say about that? Like, where is the responsibility of the of the researcher and us and humans? Because I guess that's that's the interesting thing about with this theory is 
you're spend so much time saying that humans and non-humans are alike when at the end of the day it's humans that are making the choices about where the networks end and where the networks start or at least as far as us humans know yeah that's a very valid point harry thanks and yeah you're also right that kind of depending on from what kind of how much we zoom in or how much we zoom out um the network becomes visible or invisible if you zoom out very far then the whole network might disappear and you don't see it anymore and that's of course the choice or the decision and the responsibility of the researcher at the end also um to kind of make it clear that um yeah that's basically a, an an analytic choice also from from what perspective to look at it and how how much you zoom in and how much you then maybe make the network visible or whether you just make it a point basically so Bruno Latour who's also like a very big name in SDS in general and who so, who has also developed a lot um in this uh realm of actor network theory would then speak of punctualization so you make it a dot in a way but mentioning those stuff i mean can you actually draw a line or put a boundary in terms of actors what is an actor and what is a epistemic living space or where is stuff stop being co-produced can we set boundaries or something I mean, what I would say is that it really depends on what you want to look at and how you want to look at it. And I think these different concepts or rather perspectives or lenses help us to emphasize different things. So with co-production, we are looking at how space, for instance, how spaces and humans are uh, if like uh, interrelated and uh, producing each other when With epistem with the concept of epistemic living spaces, we're rather zooming into the life and experiences and narratives and uh, perspectives of researchers themselves and how they work and live in different uh, environments and different embeddings. And with actor network theory, we still have a another uh, perspective, with as Nora said, emphasizes this symmetry of uh humans and non-humans and that we really need to think about where the agency lies and uh yeah i think i i actually would th would beg to differ that it's not a question of agency here and that these approaches the reason that it's really difficult to combine these approaches and most sts scholars go down different roads uh, is because co-production is an inherently humanist approach whereas ant is an inherently uh i don't know how to make symmetrical a verb but it it tries to make things symmetrical in terms of agency and that's the criticism of it also is that it does make agency something that is shared by all actors it doesn't answer to questions of power which are the more important questions here because power and agency are not the same thing. And where there is power uh, are at the boundaries. So where we set the boundaries of things. And this, for all we know, is done by humans, but is aided by non-human actors in almost non-describable ways. So to relate back to our concept here, 
it, it's things as mundane as images and sounds that help us set boundaries about where we are and what we should be doing. And researchers, uh, going back to epistemic living spaces, um, are constantly uh, in this state of setting boundaries. So boundary work is an inherent day-to-day task of researchers. Um, I would actually argue that it's an inherent day-to-day task of all humans, actually, is setting boundaries. Um, you just don't aren't as aware of it as uh, I would say a researcher is because it's something that they have to do um, all the time in their job. So it's not just about setting the boundaries about, hey, this is my personal life and this is my work, but it's about setting the boundaries, hey, this is my work and this is my research, right? Because there's two different things. There's going to work in your epistemic living space or in your workplace, which could be a university. It could be your home office as is now uh, on a Zoom screen. But then there's the actual research projects that you're doing, which are producing knowledge. So there's a whole lot of boundary work at play there for researchers every day. And boundary work, we have to remember also, isn't just about setting the boundary, about dividing things A, B, and saying this is this and this is that. It's also about setting a boundary around things that bring it together to try to combine those things. So for example, something that's not to do with researchers, um, if you wanted to make a very wide boundary, you could say that Nora's two recordings are actually almost the same. Uh, That the main actors in those networks were the birds and were outside. And that actually she is in a network of outdoor space because she walks and she goes outside. So she's not stuck at home. So they actually have more in common than they do uh, different. But uh, doing some boundary work here, humans would look in and say, hey, what are the differences in this? Oh, there's some cars and there's some different noises. So the differences are actually the more minuscule thing uh, from this perspective. But we choose actively with the power that we have and the agency that we have to focus on drawing those differences. Um, Looking at the actors in those, such as cars, bicycles, more people, and maybe even if you're a bird expert, the different birds, Uh, but we can't go that far. Yeah. When with, in terms of A&T, one could add that, I mean, also networks broke down because certain actors didn't function the way they used to. So then kind of our networks changed. And now we, for example, live or I live in my shared flat network in a way. And like all the other networks, I basically, or most of the other networks kind of going to uni or kind of talking to friends and stuff happens a lot online through a new kind of network, the Zoom network in a way, or digital infrastructures now. Yes, A&T. Um, I wanted to discuss a bit with you because now everybody presented, I think, more than enough from their theoretical perspective. So maybe we can just make a discussion because I think that's the main point of the podcast. And so far it had, it had worked pretty good. My question would be like, what can we get from studying sounds or from looking at sounds? Why is it important even to look at sounds? Why do we choose to look at those things? right to to think about spaces we haven't really talked about that and i think that's kind of important for this episode mm-hmm. i think this is all of us subconsciously really badly wanting to go on a concert <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably yeah to me it's just like how the space sounds like it really characterizes the atmosphere of the space you're in in a way it's kind of like a soundtrack I feel like often, and when I 
for example, when I go for a walk and there's no traffic, it's like a different soundtrack. It's more calm than if I go next to a big street with uh, with heavy traffic. So I feel like to me, it's just like this, what is what is often left kind of unsaid, the sound of the space, but it's so characteristic for space, I feel like. It makes a whole soundscape in a way, like a landscape with with sound. When somebody tells you something is a positive space or a negative space or something like that, or how artists look at space and how they describe it, I think that's also very interesting because we only offered very limited, I guess, and mm -hmm. really practical examples of space. The reason studying sounds are easy for or, or interesting to me is that it's a very individualized type of thing. So uh, to create a space, so the sounds that people hear, they interpret them differently. I mean, they can always interpret them the same and they can mean different things, but they do create a kind of an individual perception of the space, which I think is interesting and is kind of not studied as far as I know, um, sounds and how they affect individual perceptions, at least in the field of STS. I know that, that it's not really a studied thing. So I think this could be really interesting. Yeah, I think it's part of like psychological uh, studies a lot. But mm -hmm. I think you're right. Like we focus on like written documents, uh, speech, so communication, um, visual analysis, but sound is really rarely seen in STS. And I'm wondering if we could expand this uh, little approaches we have taken here to to investigate sounds in our environment further. Yeah, I feel like that with ethnographic methods, you could, of course, kind of you, you would have like a tool how to investigate sounds in a way. You just need to pay attention to it. And it's true. I've also, I've rarely came across an ethnographic study where where sound was really like in the central to it. But I mean, I also haven't really specifically searched for it. <laughs> I think back in the days uh, when the first anthropology, anthropological actually researches happened in different tribes, in different continents, sounds were in artifacts also, which is also something you can send in space actually, but sounds were used a lot for communication simply because the people back then didn't have the technology and they were relying a lot on sign language and different sounds to communicate. And when you think about it, it's really rooted in the nature of the human because this is kind of where we originate with. We use it to also nowadays to communicate with our uh, pets, if you want. When you want to call your dog or something, you also make a sound. So even though we verbalize it more with the time, I think sounds are have been and will stay a big part of of our form of communication and how we shape our our environments and our spaces. And they just develop just like anything else. They develop into music that used to be more analog, now it's more digital. They develop into conversations and then develop into big discussions. And then they develop into podcasts. And I don't know, for someone who doesn't understand English, maybe this just sounds like random sounds. But you see, it's very complicated what meaning 
every sound has to different people because this has also a lot to do with your upbringing and the environment you grew up in, the space that is your habitat normally. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed our ride on the STS spaceship. Maybe we could even inspire you to be more attentive to the soundscapes in your social environment. If you want to share them with us, we're happy if you tag us in your Instagram story at Science Slot Machine. We're also always happy to answer any of your STS-related questions and to receive topic suggestions. You can reach out to us via social media or email. The email address is in the show notes. With that being said, we leave you with the recordings from the Voyager spacecraft. Enjoy and hear you next time if you like. Bye from the Science Slot Machine team that is Costa, Robbie, Harry and me, Nara. Bye.
Scientists. Да.